So we are after a correct understanding of his character, attributes, and perfections. Three things are necessary in order to have faith that leads to salvation. I must understand, I must have a correct understanding of his character. Do you remember the six that Joseph Smith stated in lectures on faith? I don't think that it's a limitation. I think we could add to them, but the six that they listed. Number one, he is the greatest of all. <clears throat> he is the greatest of all. He is greater than any challenge that I face. He is greater than death. He is the greatest of them all. Number two, he is merciful. Oh, I am not spelling well. He is merciful. He does have a forgiving disposition. Number three, he doesn't change. Does not change. Number four, he does not, he cannot lie. Number five, well, no. I have written here, no respecter of persons, but I know that's not the exact quotation. Yeah, that is the exact quotation. No favorites. He does not have favorites. Oh, my goodness. He does know how to spell. <laughs> Number six, I have loving. He is the embodiment of love. His, every motivation he has, his mo he doesn't have ulterior motives. His motivation is love. He cares and he wants what is best for us. His motivation is love. Okay, his attributes. You're doing great. And notice they come kind of in palette. So we spent last week talking about the balance between what he knows, what he can spell. Oh my goodness. Law, knowledge and power. Now his perfection is in the balance of those. We made it clear what he knows. What he knows about the human condition, what he knows about me, and if he's motivated by love, then he knows exactly which human condition I need to experience and when in order to save me. So the reason he doesn't do more, he doesn't save me from pain, is because he knows. So there's that balance. Now the next one is justice. And number five is mercy. And again, a balance. He is perfectly just. I struggled with that. Why do I want to believe that God is just? I don't know that we'll tackle that one in this class, but why do you want to believe that God is perfectly just? Justice scares me. I like mercy. I don't want justice. Except for what? Why do I want to believe that God is just? I can forgive because I can trust what? He will take care of it. Sometimes we feel like I can't forgive because I can't let them off the hook. They're not on my hook, are they? They're on his hook. And I can trust his perfect justice. And that allows me to freely forgive. That's one of the things that allows me to forgive. So I think justice is important. But today... Yes, good point. Today I want to do number four because I'm trying to help you see what kind of God you have and that you can connect. And part, we talked about hope 
And I think one of the reasons we fear we lack hope is because we're terrified of him. And one of the reasons we're terrified of him is we are terrified of what he thinks about me. And so tonight I want to talk about his judgment. God's judgment. As he looks over your life, how does he judge? Because isn't that kind of what terrifies us? You remember that picture of Jesus knocking on the door and there's no handle? What's going on on the other side? What would you be doing if Jesus were knocking at the door? Frantically cleaning up, right? I can't let him in when the house looks like this because of what he would think about me. There it is. That's one of the sources of our fears, is what would he think? Which is a dilemma because I know he knows it. I know he knows how messy it is on this side of the door. But aren't we terrified of what he thinks about me? So I want to talk about judgment. I want to see if I can completely change your thinking. Here's the thing. You have never met anyone on earth that judges like he does. And because of that, it's hard to understand how he judges. I'm guessing many of you have run into people who have judged very harshly. I hope your parents weren't one of them. I worry that some of you had parents who were very critical and were constantly pointing out the negative. I worry that some of you had teachers and professors who would just rip you to shreds for every little mistake. We bump into so much harsh judgment, I think it's natural to begin to assume that that's how he judges. And so I want to go through the scriptures and let him teach you how he judges. And as you see how he judges, would you ponder, what does that mean I can do about letting him in that door? What does a correct understanding of how he judges allow me to feel about letting him into my life? Isn't it his condemnation and his judgment we're most afraid of? I mean, you've all gotten the call from the bishop. Can I see you on Sunday? I'd like to see you on Sunday. And tell me what happens for, for the rest of the week. What's he going to say? Why does he want to talk to me? What does he know? I fear his judgment. And the same thing is true of God. I fear his judgment of me. So allow me to walk through scriptures, Old and New Testament, that point out how he judges. We'll throw a Doctrine and Covenants in there as well. How does God judge? And as we list these, would you ponder, okay, what does that mean about letting him in? And when I get the phone call from him, can I see you on Sunday? what I know I'm in for. How does God judge? All right, number one, 
Let's go back to the Old Testament. I want you to find 1 Samuel 16. We're going to go to verse 7, but we need to start in verse 6. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, Samuel is the story of Saul. First king of Israel was Saul. Saul started off to be, there was no more goodlier person than Saul. But Saul is the story of, we've learned by sad experience, that is the nature and disposition of almost all men. As soon as they get a little authority, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. There's King Saul, and King Saul has fallen. And the Lord says, I don't, I want a new king. So he sent his prophet Samuel to find the new king. And he told him only one thing. It is Jesse's son. One of Jesse's sons is the new king. So he goes to Jesse's house and in verse 7, in walks Eliab, who looked like a king. Tall, majestic, muscular. And what does Samuel conclude? Sorry, I thought this was up. What does Samuel conclude upon looking at Eliab? When they were coming, when Eliab was coming, he looked upon Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. What kind of judgment is that? Based solely on height, strength, stature. And so many times we judge on what we see. And I'm terrified that God judges on what I do, what, I, what he sees me do. Uh, for anyone who's read Christian Gospel or served a mission, there's this uh, entry in like one of the chapters where it talks about like, so it shows a picture of an iceberg, right? And how you don't really know these people. What you see on like the surface is just like this, just this like little iceberg. But beneath it, there is so much more that yeah. you can't see under the water. That is exactly what God sees. So in correcting Samuel, who judged completely on what he looked like, tell me how God judges. Someone read verse 7. Anyone want to read for me? First Samuel 16, 7. God sees the heart. He knows what I wanted to do. He knows what my intentions were, not my actions. He knows what my intentions are. And which one usually suits me better, my actions or my intentions? Which one would give you a more favorable insight as to who I am if you simply saw my actions or knew my intentions? And your Heavenly Father knows your intentions. Let me give you a couple of examples that I absolutely love. Doctrine and Covenants 111. It's easy to remember. 111, verse 1. Now, 109 is a dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. So they've just constructed the Kirtland Temple. Now tell me, for their ability to pay... And what kind of building they built, how expensive was the Kirtland Temple? May very well be the most expensive building ever built, considering their inability to pay. They didn't even have an architect. And what they produced. Now, Joseph went into debt for it. 
And he can't stand that. He does not want to be in debt for the temple. So someone shows up who says that he knows where a lot of gold is hidden in the basement of a house in Salem, Massachusetts. Now, that's not far-fetched. What's far-fetched is for Joseph to think that's how the Lord's going to get the church out of debt, right? I'm going to show you a house that has a lot of gold in the basement. If the Lord wanted to do that, would we even need to go to Salem, Massachusetts? No. But Joseph is desperate, and he very much wants to do something good. He wants to get the church out of debt. So he believes this guy. Where was section 111 given? Salem, Massachusetts, which means what? They went. They went looking for gold in a basement to get the church out of debt. Now, tell me the look on Heavenly Father's face. Now, let's read verse 1. Ready? Here we go. Verse 1. Is this Joseph's most brilliant idea? No. Is he going to find any gold in the basement? He is not. This is not his most brilliant idea. But listen to Heavenly Father. Listen and tell me what he knows. Who'll read verse 1? I just love this verse. It's so helpful for me to see this. Read verse 1. Yep. In other words, say that in your own language. Um, I, I know your intentions. Joseph. Yeah, Joseph. What's the look on his face? I'm not, no, I'm just it's just like Joseph, 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 Joseph. Right? What were you thinking? You think this is how I'm going to get the church out of debt? I can just see the look on his face, like Joseph. Well, he's not displeased. But bless your heart. Right? I know what you're trying to do. This isn't the way to do it, but I know what you're trying to do. He doesn't seem so concerned about what Joseph did as much as Joseph wanted. Can I illustrate with my own life? Um, I, my oldest son now is 25 years old. 26. He's 26 years old. When he was about seven he broke the head off of one of my golf clubs. Now, I'm not an avid golfer, but I do enjoy golfing once in a while. And I had a, I had a pretty nice nine iron. And you use your nine iron quite a bit when you golf. And he just busted. So I don't know what he was doing, but he busted the head off my nine iron. And that little boy, terrified of my judgment, went into the house and found the scotch tape and wrapped it around the head of the golf club and stuck it in my back. Now, I saw it, and I had a choice. See the broken golf club, or see the little boy who broke it and tried to fix it. Which one would Heavenly Father do? That's what He sees. He sees the heart. Bless your soul, Joseph. What a dumb idea. But I love that you tried. I love that you tried and you wanted. And I kept that golf club for a long time as a reminder of how Heavenly Father judges. I can just picture him looking down at me, breaking his golf club and trying so bad to fix it. And he just says, oh, Bryce, that's not how you fix a golf club. But bless your soul for trying. 
That's how he judges. He sees my heart. He knows what I was thinking. He knows what I wanted. He knows that I didn't have the best. Okay, it wasn't the greatest idea, but you know what I was trying to do. Have you ever baked something like that? Does the end product taste the way you wished, the way you intended it to taste? Now, what would Heavenly Father taste? Not what you made. He would taste what you wanted to make. Now, how many times is there a big gap between what you were trying to do and what you actually did? Okay, I don't really exactly know where I'm going with this. It just kind of reminded me of this. Like, when I was still in high school, I was learning how to bake for the first time. <laughs> and I could, just could not get cookies right. It took me about, like, five times of baking cookies for it not to taste too much like salt or too much like oil. And I honestly think the gospel is a lot like cookies because... It's like this trying. There's so many things. Try over and over again to get it right. Yep. My daughter became an expert baker at Crumble. She was one of the very best bakers at Crumble, and she could just produce doughs like no one else. And she was the requested baker because she could do it so quickly. So one night she said, well, I'll just bake cookies for our family. And they were a disaster. And it was like she was so devastated because she was such a good baker with their recipe and their ingredients. And then when she came home to our recipe and our ingredients, it was a flop. And it was, again, another example of, but none of us cared. None of us criticized her. Never, none of us thought less of her when she burned the cookies at our house. But what was she thinking? Tell me what my daughter's thinking the whole time. Ab- absolutely embarrassed, right? And there it is with Heavenly Father. So there's number one. He sees the heart. Okay, let's do number two. Doctrine and Covenants section 46, verse 15. Now, section 46 is all about the gifts of the Spirit. That he's talking about the gift of faith, the gift of wisdom. So many wonderful doctrines about the gift of the Spirit and how every single one of us has a gift of the Spirit. And then in verse 15, he's talking about the differences of administration, which is a fancy way of saying the, the, the gift of judgment. And then he says an absolutely profound truth about how God judges. Our Heavenly Father suits His mercies. How? What does that mean? He suits his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. So kind of keeping the same nomenclature, God sees, what would you put? The situation. The whole situation. What difference does that make? What difference does it make that God takes the circumstances into consideration. How many times do your actions look bad in any other circumstance, but in that circumstance, they're totally understandable. What if I told you that my wife said, once said something really, really harsh to me? I mean, really harsh to me. You'd have a tendency to say, Sister Dunford, what if I told you she was giving birth without an epidural? Then what do you say to her? You can say anything you want, honey. You yell it louder, baby. 
That's all you got? Because all of a sudden, those harsh words are completely understandable in that circumstance, right? But if you take them out of that circumstance, we might have a tendency to... Now, you have to understand that God sees the whole circumstance. So tell me about suicide. What do we have a tendency to do with each other? We're very critical. And what does he know? Exactly what was going on. He knew exactly which chemicals were there and which chemicals were not there. He knew exactly what was going on. So who will suit his mercies to the circumstance better than any of us can? If you lift the action out of the circumstance, we condemn each other. But once you put it in the circumstance and you fully understand all that was going on, it suits our mercies to increase those mercies. He knows. He knows exactly what was going on when you did that and why you did that. That is so reassuring. I once worked at a seminary across from a high school. One of our students was caught stealing food from the high school refrigerator. They were going to expel the student. I went to see the principal to tell him what was going on at home. And that that boy and his younger brother had probably not had anything to eat for days. And most likely he was probably taking that home, not for himself, but for his younger brother. Do you think they suspended him? Did they punish him? They didn't. You know what they did? They sent the food home. Because they came to understand what? The situation. And the one thing you can trust that your Heavenly Father will always do is judge you in light of the whole situation. He knows the chemicals that were going on inside you and the chemicals that were absent. He knows what someone had said. He knows the background. He knows what happened when you were a child. He sees the circumstance. I love that truth. No one sees it better than he does. Let's do number three. Luke chapter 7. One of my favorite New Testament stories. Jesus is invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee. Luke chapter 7. Let's start in verse 36. Luke 7, 36. Actually, you know what? I'm going to pull this up because I want to emphasize. So let me turn this one. Oh, there it is. Hold on. Let me get a picture ready. 
Okay. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he saw it. Tell me what he saw. He saw a sinner touching Jesus. He saw it. That it is so symbolic. And it's, that's unique to the English, English translation. It is. I think it's implied, but it's unique to the English translation that they put that in there because he wasn't seeing what Jesus is going to see. He saw it. And so many times you and I see it. So many times people are an object or they're an action or they're a smell and people see it. And when Simon saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. He saw simply a sinner, and you can sense the disdain he feels. Now, I got to tell you, very best typo ever produced in the scriptures is that last word. It was corrected in a recent edition, but this is the typo. Do you see it? Sorry. <laughs> Not only was she a sinner, she was a sinner. And that's the best typo because that's what he saw. He saw a triple N sinner. If you have any scriptures from the 90s, don't ever throw them away because that's the best typo ever. This one. Yeah. This woman is a triple N sinner. He's. This woman is a sinner. Sin -na -na -na. Yep, I just love that. Anyway, now contrast that with Jesus. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have someone to say unto thee. He said, Master, say on. There was a, credit, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said, thou hast rightly judged. And then verse 44. I think these might be my four favorite words that Jesus uttered. He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, seest thou this woman? Absolute favorite words. I see her. I don't see her actions. I see her. I see premortal her. I see postmortal her. I see resurrected her. I see 
her. I see her. Now, if we really push that, Paul tells us that the veil of the temple is Jesus's flesh. When I stand at the temple, when I stand at that veil and talk to Heavenly Father, how much of me does he see? Does he see my hand? He doesn't see any of me. All he sees is the veil, which means God sees me through Christ. He sees me wrapped in the atonement. You and I see it. He sees me. And not mortal me. He sees Jesus wrapped around me. He sees me through the atonement. And that's how he judges. He, God, sees me. And then I'm going to add through Jesus. He doesn't see the action. He doesn't see the triple end sinner. He sees the woman. Let's do number four. Is this getting too low? Should I go higher? Number four. Turn to, me, turn to John chapter eight. The woman taken in adultery. The woman who just committed a vile transgression of the law of Moses. And according to the law of Moses should be stoned. She, has, she is guilty. Now watch what Jesus does and what he doesn't do. I'll bring up the black one. Okay, so verse one. Uh, sorry, verse three. Scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set, him, set her in the midst, they said unto her, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, the law, Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? It's a trap. Does he choose mercy or justice? If he chooses mercy, they'll claim he's not the Messiah because he's not just. If he chooses justice, they'll claim he's not the Messiah because he's not merciful. Honestly, it's a little more petty than that, too. It's even more. It's a lot more petty than that. Otherwise, they would have brought both of them, right? So what do you say? Should we stone her? What is his answer? Tell me where, first of all, I love the end of verse 6. He is reluctant to answer. He does not jump at the chance to judge. He is reluctant. He writes on the ground as though he heard them not. But they press him. When they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, She should be stoned, but not by you. In other words, he judged her. True or false, he judged her. What's his judgment of her? Guilty of violating the law of Moses. But what does he point out? Just because she's guilty doesn't mean she should have stones thrown at her. 
So I need to point out the difference between judgment and throwing a stone. They are not the same. He said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So why should she be stoned? She's guilty, right? She has violated the law of Moses. She is guilty of adultery. Is there anyone in that room, is there anyone in that midst that that fit this description? One. One person qualified to throw the stone. And that one person chose what? To not throw a stone. Judgment and throwing stones are not the same thing even though we often equate them to be the same. Let me give you a different term instead of throwing the stones. So the one person who could have thrown a stone did not. And everyone else who shouldn't be throwing stones were condemned. So they all depart. They all leave one by one. When Jesus had lifted himself and I love this phrase again. What did he see? He saw none but the woman. I love that phrase again. He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And now what did Jesus do? Who's just judged her? What did he say? Neither do I condemn thee. We need to understand there is a difference between judgment and condemnation. With human beings, it's almost always the same. Condemnation is when you say, ew. Judgment is when you say, I don't think you and I should date. I don't think we have the same standard. I don't think you and I are a match. But I appreciate that. And there's no ew. Condemnation is, ew, I wouldn't go out with you. You see the difference? Now, what is it that we are usually guilty of? I've taught seminary at multiple high schools. And I've always done something. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have done it, but I've always found an opportunity to meet with non-member students at that high school. Non-LDS students. And I pull them aside and say, tell me about my students. What would you have me teach my LDS students? And every single high school I've ever taught at, the the non-LDS kids tell me one thing. Tell me what they claim the LDS kids are doing that needs to stop. Judging. You Mormons are so judgmental. Now, when I push that and say, tell me exactly what you mean, which of the two are they really describing? I don't think they're saying you Mormons are judgmental. I think they're saying you Mormons are condemning. With you, it's you. It's you. Judgment and condemnation are not the same thing. And with God, they are separated. And I've got to get that into my head. He doesn't go ew. 
he can say to me, that was not right and still lift me up. And I know that's hard to understand because no one you know does that. Everyone you know judges with condemnation. But Jesus separates judgment and condemnation. He said she's guilty and he didn't throw a stone at her. In fact, look at the JST. There's a Joseph Smith change when he said, go and sin no more. Tell me what Joseph Smith adds. Now, hold on, let's put this in perspective. He just said she was guilty. Is it clear in her minds that what she has done is unacceptable to Christ? And yet, how does she walk away? That's how God judges. Without condemnation, he doesn't throw the stone. And isn't that what I'm most worried about is the stone? Why is it that I don't open the door and let him in, especially when the house is a mess? Because he will be disappointed in me. But the thing I have to understand about God, it's not disappointment. He does not have disappointment, simply a desire to help me. You can have an, an, you can have an interchange with God be corrected for your wrong decisions and still walk away how? Lifted. And that's how he judges. We have got to understand that. I think what, why we're afraid of him is the condemnation. I think he's going to throw a stone at me. I'm worried that the bishop's going to throw a stone at me when he calls, to see, call me, calls me in to see him. It's the condemnation that scares us. But there is no, neither do I condemn thee. But you're guilty. Can we talk about your behavior and how it needs to improve without condemnation? She walked away having been judged and found guilty go and sin no more and yet she walked away glorifying god from that hour and believing on his name her exchange with christ lifted her and didn't tear her down that is such a big deal to me and i just don't know how to emphasize it uh, this is where the music just needs to crescendo and your your hair needs to be standing on the edge of your neck and you need to realize that I can have an interchange with God, be corrected for my mistakes and not shamed. And no, throw, no stones were thrown. And I'm gonna walk away being a better man. I'm gonna be, walk away inspired, not condemned or shamed. Now I will admit, I have never had that experience with a human being. Some closer than others, but I've never fully had that experience with a human being. So I understand why it's so fathomable that it, that's not how God is. But I am here to testify 
that God's judgment is without condemnation or stones. That any interchange with him, even right after a sin, even right after you've committed a sin, would make it very clear where he is on the sin and very clear where he stands on me. Judgment without condemnation. I just, I wish I could testify more powerfully of that truth. There is no reason to not open the door and let him in. Even after a major transgression, there is no reason to skip your prayers that night. There is every reason to talk to him. But you will not have been the recipient of stones. Just help. That is his character. Of that I testify. That no one sees your heart better and knows every desire that you had. He does not see the broken club. He sees the little boy who tried to fix it. He sees my heart. He sees the circumstances. He knows exactly what was going on. Even when no one else does, he knows exactly the circumstances. He sees me and he sees me through the atonement. He doesn't see me at my worst. He sees me at my very best. And then he judges without condemnation. Of that I testify and pray that when you anticipate judgment from God, it not be something that you're afraid of. Do you remember the days when they would post grades and you would just walk up with like, or you'd get the grade in the mail and you'd open it up and it'd be like, don't ever approach judgment with God that way. There is no one in this universe who wants more for your success. And I testify, every exchange with him, you will walk away glorifying his name and believing in him. And no stones. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.